Section 13 of The Haunted Organist of Hurlyburly and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. The Haunted Organist of Hurlyburly and Other Stories by Rosa Mulholland. Section 13. The Senor John part one it seems but this morning that i got up before the sun in our little wooden house to cook bake wash in the river help to mow the grass coax my father serve my brother nicolo and be as happy as the grasshoppers that sing both day and night we lived upon a very high alp and we were poor though we did not suffer hardship in winter we had plenty of pine logs to keep the fire alive, and at night we were very gay, singing songs and playing the zither. In summer we breakfasted on the grass in the faint dawn, dined under the long roof at the sheltered side of the house, and supped by the starlight. After which I danced for my father while Nicolo played the pipes. The chance passing of travellers was an excitement to us. A woodcarver from the Tyrol sprained his foot near our place, and taught Nicolo to carve whilst we nursed him. This was something to be grateful for, as travellers would buy the work, and besides it gave our boy something to do. He was a cripple from his birth. One foot did not come to the ground, somehow. And his back was a good deal bent. He had a very square face, with bright eyes and brown hair, and was said to be quite a Swiss, as our mother had been. The first figure he carved was my patron Saint Christopher, wading through the torrent with the child-god on his shoulders, and it was given me after he had bitten one of my fingers because I had stayed out alone in the moonlight, forgetting to fetch him. He never was so vexed, however, that I could not offer him comfort, asking him to plait my long hair, which came to my ankles. I would sit down on the ground with my back against his knees, when he would dress the hair beautifully. If I were restless, he would hurt me. If I were patient, he would kiss me. And if his work pleased him fully, he was blithe the rest of the day. Once I went with my father to a feast at a lower village, the Festa of St. Florian. This was the first occasion on which I wore my mother's costume. On the night before the feast, I was holding out my foot to note how my shabby shirt had crept up my leg. My father came and measured me with his alpenstock. "'You are now as tall as your mother,' he said. "'You may henceforth wear her clothes.' He shed tears in the morning when he saw me in her dress, but was so well pleased afterwards that I ran to the nearest tarn to see what I might be like. The tarn was nearly filled with rosy clouds, besides a gigantic pine-tree which tapered up and broke them. I seized the sombre draperies of the pine-tree, and gazing into the water, saw a maiden like the women whose fathers are wealthy vine-dressers. Her petticoat was of orange cloth, her long narrow apron of a rich shade of blue. Her black velvet bodice was laced with gold over white, and a deep red sash was folded well about her waist. The only part of the picture that I knew was a pale, dark countenance with red lips, and the wide black eyes that seemed to take up half the face. 
I marked Niccolo's plaits and the silver arrows he had fastened in them, and the bunch of scarlet ash berries which he had fixed behind my ear. I saw that this was myself, and I ran merrily to the chalet to hug my little Niccolo and tell him not to pinch our neighbor Teresa, who was kindly coming to keep house for him whilst my father and I were away. Placido, with his mule, came to meet us, a young man of the village who had sometimes business on our alp. He brought us to see his house, in which he had just put pretty furniture, and asked us to praise the fresco of St. Florian upon the gable, which he had lately got retouched for the festa. He had also made a new staircase up to his balcony, and the people joked Placido, saying he meant to take a wife. It was a very pleasant festa. People treated me as a woman, now that I was grown enough to wear my mother's clothes. I was often asked to dance, and listened to with attention when I sang and played the zither. The next day Placido brought us a long way upon our road towards home. We could not get him to leave us till the worst of the journey was past. Thanks to his stout mule, we got over all our difficulties, and were going along merrily when we heard a voice above us shouting through the pines. Right above our heads there was a desert of lonely crags, a wild and dreaded place where death lies in wait for men. My father left me sitting upon a pine stump and went shouting up the crags, seeking the stranger who had called. He returned with him by and by, and we hurried along on our journey, for though the air was flushed with color, yet the darkness was close at hand. We hastened along in silence, dragging each other up steeps, and going hand in hand, step by step, slowly along narrow shifty places. The traveller had a fair foreign look, which is to us most perfect beauty. His locks shone in the twilight, after my father's dusky head had got lost in the gloom of the pines. Arrived at our alp at last, we found Teresa preparing supper, and Niccolo sitting in the doorway piping shrilly up to the moon. The stranger gave me his hand up the last ascent, then raised it to his lips. "'My pretty little girl,' he said, "'you have certainly saved my life.' When Niccolo saw us coming, he limped to meet us. "'Who is this that has come with you, Netta, who smiles and kisses your hand?' "'Hush, Niccolo. He is English, but he understands our talk.' The stranger threw down his hat and knapsack before the door. The firelight shone over the threshold, and our neighbor Teresa appeared, carrying out the supper-table which she placed upon the grass. The next morning, when I wakened, I peeped down between the rafters of my bedroom in the loft, and saw the stranger talking to my father in the doorway. I crept down the ladder and found nobody in the place. Niccolo had lit the fire for me, and gone away to his work, and I heard my father's voice shouting in the distance. The senor was then gone. I heaved a sigh between regret and relief, and seized hold of a pitcher, and prepared to go to the tarn. I made a step across the threshold, and started back. The senor was leaning, smoking against our chalet. I sprang back so quickly that I broke the pitcher, and had to press my hands on my eyes to keep the tears from falling. Child, said the senor, smiling in at me, why do you take such pains to hide your face? One does not see so pretty a thing every day. I'm not pretty this morning, I said. It was only my mother's clothes. 
and I was hiding my face in trouble because I have broken my jug. "'And you were going to fetch water?' he said. "'And yonder pail is too heavy for you? "'And it was all owing to me that you broke the pitcher?' "'He lifted the pail on his shoulders. "'Come, let us fetch the water,' he said. "'I shall want to show you the way.' "'We fetched the water together, "'and the stranger taught me to call him Signor John. "'He had an air of grand and gentle, "'and a pleasant light in his eyes.' He laughed gaily when amused, and that encouraged me. At breakfast we saw no Niccolo, and I invited the Signor John to look at his carvings, at St. Barnaba with her tower, St. Dorothy and her roses, St. Vincent among his orphans, St. Elizabeth, whose royal mantle was filled with bread. Niccolo had carved them all, and they stood in a row in his workshop. They were far the finest things we had got in our chalet. Yet when I brought the Signor to look at them, Niccolo shut the door in his face. Never mind, said the Signor John. We can amuse ourselves. I wish to make a sketch of you, if you don't object to sit. I ought to be at my work, I said, but ran to tell my father who was chopping wood in the pine brake. It is an honor not to be refused, he said. You must ask the good Teresa to stay and prepare our dinner. The Signor spread out his pictures for me to see, saying he was an artist only by love and not by profession. I thought that love must have the best of it, so beautiful was his work, much finer than Placido's fresco, which was considered something fine. There were pictures of lovely ladies who were of his own country, and their beauty seemed to laugh at me, and my heart began to sink. Signor, I said almost tearfully, "'Shall I not return to the chalet and put on my mother's clothes?' "'Your mother's clothes?' he cried, amazed. "'Those I had on yesterday. The colors are gay and bright. "'Else I shall make such an ugly picture. You will throw it away.' "'You make far the prettiest picture I have ever seen,' he said. "'And I shall hang it up where I can look at it every day.' "'I blushed with surprised delight. "'Thank you, Signor John.' I muttered, and crossed my hands as he had arranged them, and gazed over into the pine forest in a way which he had already approved. The Signor remained at our chalet for a whole week. Every morning we started on some new excursion, he and I together, for my father had not time to attend to him, and Niccolo could not walk. One evening we were all at supper when Placido appeared with his mule coming up our alp. My father welcomed him kindly and bade him sit down and eat. He looked strangely at the Signor John, and then at me, but our new friend spoke to him pleasantly, and they were soon conversing together. Placido was a large man with a calm face. He had dark, thoughtful eyes and brows well bent above them, and a heap of coal-black locks that left his temples broad and bare. He had a slow, gentle smile, but was quick and firm in speech. As steady as Placido Lores was a byword in his village. After supper was over, Placido seized on the supper-table and carried it back to the chalet, I following on his steps with a dish and ewer. As I washed the platters and restored them to their shelves, Placido put logs on the fire and blew them into flames. 
I finished my task and put off my apron, chattering gaily to him all the time. I could see his figure looming out against the firelight, and at the same time my father and the Signor John standing, talking, out in the moonlight. Placido had given me very absent answers, but at last made a sudden move, and with two long strides stood right before me. Netta, he said, I came to ask if you would marry me. I was utterly amazed and a good deal frightened. He looked so very determined, as if I must come off that moment, whether I would or not. My knees knocked together, and I clung to the table. You don't really mean it, Placido. You cannot want a wife. Not any wife, he said. I only ask for you. Oh, Placido, don't, I said. Look, you, my little dearest one, he urged. You may think me a rough lover, but never was a wife more loved and prized than you will be if you come to me. Thank you, Placido, I said. You mean to be very kind to me, but I do not think about marrying, and please be so very good as not to ask me again. My father and the Signor John here put in their heads at the door. What is this that is going on? said my father. Netta, are you scolding our neighbor? Oh, no, no, cried Placido. It is only that my suit displeases her. I asked her just now to marry me, and she does not wish to consent. What? cried my father, turning to me. You don't mean to say that you would refuse so kind an offer. Do not think about me, my daughter. I would rather see you provided for than to keep you for my comfort. I do not like to marry, I said, weeping. I do not love Placido, and it would be dreadful to have to marry him. Placido's face flushed and then turned pale again. I did not come here to make you weep, he said, sadly. The pain of my disappointment is not worth one of your tears. He turned to go away, but my father seized him by the arm. Wait, my dear friend, he said, and do not be offended at a girl who is still a child. Then, turning to the senor, who had looked on gravely at this scene, Senor, come to my assistance, he cried. Netta will heed your counsel. The senor looked at me tenderly, with an uneasy look in his face. As you say, she is only a child, he said. I beg you will give her a little longer time to play. So be it, then, said my father. I drew a long breath of relief and looked gratefully at the friend who had saved me. Placido gazed from me to the senor and from the senor back to me, then suddenly laid hold of his alpenstock and bade us a quick good night. After this we had some more pleasant days, till at last there arrived a sad one when the senor prepared to leave us. I felt an odd pain in my heart which I could not drive away. The night before his departure I was standing at the fire alone. The logs were almost burnt, and lay in a red heap on the hearth. The senor came and stood by me. Netta, when I am gone, you must often think of me. I strove with a sensation of choking. What, have you not a word for me? I do not want to weep, I cried and my tears came down in a storm. "'I will certainly come back next year,' said the senor. 
and then you will be a woman grown. I wrung my hand away from him and fled to my loft. The next morning, at breakfast, he scarcely looked at me. My father was going a journey with him, and they talked about the roads. Nicolo, who had now become merry, made faces behind the signor's back, while I stood miserably in the doorway, rubbing my chilly hands together. The travellers bade us good-bye, and Nicolo went off to his workshop, but I stood gazing drearily down the alp. The signor turned and came back to me. "'Buy yourself a ribbon, pretty one,' he said, "'when you go to the next festa.' In another moment he was gone, and I had a piece of gold in my hand. I uttered a moan of indignation, and went flying down the Alp. "'Señor John! Señor John!' I cried, in a voice that must have been shrill enough to frighten the eagles. I crushed the money into his hand, but it fell to the ground between us, and he hurried off laughing and looking over his shoulder. I dug the earth with my nails and buried the gold where it lay then fled away into the pine-brake to weep long and fiercely that evening placido came back and repeated his question i gave him a sullen no and he went away more sadly than he had done before and then i began to get happy again for nicolo did not pinch me and talked to me all about his carvings just as before the signor came but my father came back from his journey with a troubled face Placido has left his village, he said, and gone to push his way in the world. End of section 13. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.